Welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I'm your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 92, featuring the return of UK wrestling historian Bradley Craig. We'll get to my conversation with Brad in just a moment. A few things I would like to appraise you of in the meantime. First of all, want to mention a couple of the new magazines that I am now featured in that are now available for purchase. Quick reminder, one of them is the January 2024 issue. That's right, January 2024. It moves quickly. Of Pro Wrestling Illustrated featuring Rhea Ripley on the cover and the, the Women's 250 listing, which I contributed to. Also in that issue, in my column the way it was, it is my tribute to perhaps the greatest women's wrestler of all time, or greatest women's wrestling attraction of all time, Mildred Burke. Also, if you check out issue number 38 of Inside the Ropes, which is available at insidetheropesmagazine.com, that is the issue with Edge on the cover, or, or I guess I should say Adam Copeland on the cover. It is available now, and in it is featured part two of my look back at historic pro wrestling venues of days gone by. This is a continuation of what I did in issue number 37. And in this issue, because we break it down alphabetically, you'll find such arenas as Sunnyside Gardens in Queens, the Montreal Forum, the Pontiac Silverdome is included in there. I believe the Louisville Gardens, that might have been last month's edition. But it is a rundown of the greatest, most respected, most well-remembered wrestling venues and what made them so special. The Dallas Sportatorium is one that's in there. The LA Olympic Auditorium, and you get the idea, on and on and on. Check it out at insidetheropesmagazine.com. To give you a quick update on the progress of Irresistible Force, the life and times of Gorilla Monsoon, I am in the phase right now of digging through research, reading through newspaper clippings, reading through articles and information and various obituaries and match results and what have you from over the years, compiling and outlining all the information that I can. And I'm coming across lots of fun facts and information that I think you're going to love that I'm going to try to bundle as much of it into this book as I can. For example, did you know that Gorilla Monsoon sang at the wedding of Giant Baba. That's right. Shohei Baba and Matoko Baba. Gorilla Monsoon sang at the wedding in Japan. So now you know. And you're going to find lots of information like that in Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. I will continue to keep you abreast of what is going on with my latest book project. Also, want to let everyone know, because from time to time I get 
notified from some people who want to be able to contribute to the show in some way, and by contribute, I mean in a monetary fashion. If you take value in what I am providing here in Shut Up and Wrestle, if you enjoy the show, if you consider it a service provided to you, which, as with all of Arcadian Vanguard services, are provided to you free of charge, but if you feel the need to reciprocate in some financial monetary way, the need to show your support with dollars and cents, I encourage you to feel free to do so. If you'd like to leave a tip for me for Shut Up and Wrestle, you can do so in a variety of ways on PayPal. I am Brian R. Solomon at yahoo.com. That's my email address. If you would like to tip the show in that format, you can also do it on Twitter. What you'll find is on my Twitter handle at Brian R. Solomon, there is a tip button at the top of the profile, and you can contribute that way through Cash App or Venmo if that's how you prefer to do it. So a little bit of a cheap plug. I figured I'd jump on board the tip train here with Shut Up and Wrestle. And if you don't have a tip to give me other than keep your day job, that's fine with me too. I am happy to continue to provide this content to you on a weekly basis. And that is what I am about to do right now because we're going to go into my conversation with Bradley Craig. You might remember at the very beginning of this show, sometime in the late winter or early spring of 2022, we had Brad on the show and we had a great conversation. That conversation continues today almost as if it never ended. Brad and I, as you'll see, can talk about wrestling forever and ever and ever. And we talked about wrestling in the United Kingdom, the effect of the major companies here on wrestling in the United Kingdom, including even AEW and the most recent stadium show that they did. But we also talk about WCW. We talk about the WWF. And we talk about the native history of professional wrestling in the UK. I guarantee you, you will be fascinated by the many twists and turns that this conversation takes. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week to welcome back somebody to the podcast who was one of my earliest guests. And now that I'm starting to invite people back, and have people back on the show who I had a lot of fun talking to the last time. I'm glad that I could bring him back. He's someone that I've worked with in the past on projects for the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. He's a fascinating guy. He, like me, can talk about wrestling basically until he passes out, which is a good quality to have for this show. He is the, the Scottish and general UK wrestling historian, and huge longtime wrestling fan, Bradley Craig. Brad, thanks for coming back to Shut Up and Wrestle. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to a fellow ardent fan uh, who just loves wrestling history as well as modern wrestling and believes in just celebrating it any way that we can. Yeah, that's it's very true. You know, I, I, I don't talk a lot about modern wrestling on the show, but I'm a fan of, of wrestling from all eras. I'm, you know, some things you love, some things you don't love. You have eras that you like better than others. Like for me, it's it, it's almost like following a sport. Like here in the United States, you know, I follow baseball. Uh, or my dad was a big baseball fan, but he'll always talk about how much he loved it when he was a kid, and it was the Brooklyn Dodgers and all this kind of thing. And but it doesn't mean he just stopped watching baseball. He still follows it. He still follows the sport. 
So even though pro wrestling is not quite a sport per se, I treat it the same way. I love it. I, I still watch it up until today, even though I would probably rather watch a 1981 episode of Mid-South than even the best episode of Monday Night Raw from 2023. So that's just me. I can completely understand that. But the thing is, you know, when we're wrestling fans, we all have a nostalgia for the stuff that we grew up on. But wrestling is a lot like the movie industry or any other art form where it evolves, it changes. There are certain things now that guys can do that or wrestlers can do that they couldn't before because of certain creative freedoms, but also athleticism and training regimes are different now. The, the grind, the schedule is a lot different, which enables guys' bodies to rest and to have probably more athletically taxing matches because they're not having the same, same daily struggle uh, right. i guess that they used to have in previous generations so it's always different every year there's something you've brought to the table in terms of pro wrestling and i guess that's what makes it exciting because you never know which direction the business is going to go that's very true and you know I, I even look at it like movies too you know i'm a huge movie buff and you know i love movies of today i go to the theater still regularly even though i know a lot of people post covid have never been back i still go but you know i could sit down and watch a, a silent film from 100 years ago and be completely engrossed but you acknowledge that they're such completely different animals you watch a movie from the 30s you watch a movie from the 60s you watch a movie from the 90s you know they're made in completely different ways the style of acting the style of filmmaking everything about it but you love movies. It's the same thing to me with wrestling. It changes so drastically over time. But whatever it is at the core of it, you just you just love it and you keep coming back to it. That's right. And also, like movies, pro wrestling is also generally designed for a specific audience. So there's a big difference between, and we're going to touch upon this, I'm sure, as our as our discussion progresses. But you know, there's a big difference between lucha libre for example, which targets yeah. a very specific audience to the likes of European European wrestling, to Japanese Hurezo, you know. So there's a lot of differences culturally in that kind of output, just like the movie industry, uh, where you had, you know, German expressionist films of the 1930s, 40s, which were completely different than the Hollywood golden age. So pro wrestling is a lot like movies. There's there's you know there's a, an inbuilt fan base and the more that you study an art form, whether it's pro wrestling, whether it's a musical style or anything like that, you, you come to understand global influences from all aspects of the world and how there's an element of cross-semination between, between styles, especially in pro wrestling where wrestlers would travel from right. all, all corners of the world. And I'm assuming, I'm wondering then, you know, as somebody who's really dug into the archives of wrestling in the UK and the past, you know, what's gone on there um, in terms of wrestlers that maybe would come from America or Canada, mm -hmm. United States or Canada, very U S centric here, but yeah. uh, that would come over there. I'm assuming that there were some guys that just knew that they would be able to transition well, that whatever they did would appeal and then there were other guys who just couldn't do it because whatever it was about their act, it worked well over here and it just didn't take over there. Like, Have you found examples like that? Yeah. I mean, when I think of guys that came over here that would be familiar to a United States audience, 
uh, or you know a North American audience, like guys that spring to mind immediately are names like uh, Flying Fuji Yamada, who became the great Jushin Thunder Liger. But mm. he obviously was a global phenomenon more than just a, a star of the United States. Obviously, he had the majority of his career in Japan. But he was sent quite early in the 1980s, around 1984, to the UK when he, when he was on excursion uh, as a young lion. And to me, although people can appreciate Jushin Liger as probably the greatest junior heavyweight wrestler of the 1980s and possibly 1990s, one of the things that really made him a complete performer was the fact that he had a fantastic mat-based style which complemented his aerial artistry. It wasn't the fact that he was just, you know, for lack of a better expression, a, a high-spot monkey. He could actually really wrestle. And part of that was because he was competing with guys such as Mark Rocco and, you know, other fantastic juniors that were in the United Kingdom at the time, guys like Chick Cullen, all of those guys who could really, really work. In terms of the most famous some of the more famous proponents of, of pro wrestling in the states that, that that had experience in the United Kingdom, there was probably no one more famous than Bret the Hitman Hart. Now, Bret Hart learned his craft quite early in his career when he, you know, obviously he started in, I think, Texas uh, when he did a, a little tour for the Funks and he did some stuff back right. home and then he was sent overseas with a talent trading agreement that Stampede had with the Crabtrees, who ran joint promotions in the United Kingdom in, in the 1970s and 80s. Now, Brett really, I think he really took to uh, the United Kingdom wrestling style like a duck to water. And one of the guys that really influenced him while he was in Canada, learning as a fan, was uh, Billy Robinson. That's who really helped Brett develop his psyche of how a wrestling match could be formulated around his own physical style. And what I mean by that is that Billy Robinson, because of his superior catch ability, could take a larger opponent and break him down by targeting specific specific uh, body parts, such as going for the legs and, and working on those methodically or going for an arm. And if you actually look at the, the Bret Hart 1990s WWF title match style, all of his title matches were built around that kind of psychology of go for the legs, attack those, you know, do the do the spot where he would place a leg on the bottom rope and do the cannonball onto it before yes. leading up to the sharpshooter. And that kind of style emanated partly from the United Kingdom because here's the thing that, people don't always remember about UK wrestling. The reason that it, a lot of the mat wrestling became chain wrestling was because the idea was that once you grounded an opponent, unless you were going for a, a hold, it, it was actually illegal to just strike them. You weren't allowed to kick a man when he was down, so to speak. You oh, had wow. to okay. transition into either a, like a Boston crab or an arm lock or a leg lock. You weren't just allowed to like drop an elbow or a knee. Well, let me ask knee. you. Let me ask you a question about that because you know we have over here the phenomenon, or at least we used to. Now everything's out the window. But in pro wrestling, there would be, you know, rules like that 
where you're not allowed to do this. You can't strike with a closed fist. You're not allowed to do that. But a lot of times what it really would be was a way for the heels to get heat because then the mm-hmm. heels would do the things that you weren't supposed to do. And then maybe mm-hmm. the baby faces might retaliate if they had enough. Um, was it done the same way over there where even though you weren't supposed to kick or do things, there would be guys that would do it to get heat? There were. Uh, the first real heel from the United States, uh, sorry, United Kingdom, was uh, a guy called Jack Pye. Dirty Jack Pye was his nickname by the fans. <laughs> that is a great name. And uh, But his heel work was so subtle. That's what made it really fantastic, was it wasn't overt, hit a guy with a steel chair or anything right. like that. It was really subtle stuff, like a kidney punch when the referee wasn't looking, you know, or just little pulls of the hair, just close work that the fans would then it would almost spread like a wildfire amongst the audience. They would, you know, say to the guy next to them on the chair, he did this. And then it would, you know, it would incite right. a almost riotous condition. Um, but he, w- he was really the kind of father of heel work in the United Kingdom. And then obviously we had more flamboyant characters as television came into prominence. Guys like uh, Jackie Palo, he was probably the first real heel. Uh, in terms of tele- the television era, now he became kind of a semi-comedic heel, more in the more in the vein of a George Scott, uh, sorry, a gorgeous George type character, where you know there was an element of flamboyance, but also he got over because he designed certain spots that made him memorable. So in a one of the first kind of moments that defined him as a pro wrestler was when he went for a drop kick, missed and caught his the middle of his legs on the top rope, you know, and he was straddling there for a little while. And that became like a talking point because nobody in TV had had done that kind of spot before. So everyone the next day at work was talking about Jackie <laughs> Palo and how he crotched himself on the ropes. Um, so, yeah, there were lots of heels, but... The thing about pro wrestling in the United Kingdom was that because it was so rigid in its rules, because we had the, you know rounds and we had best three falls, and typically there were there were several different ways to end a match. You know, if you were you would either get two decisions by pinfall or two two decisions by submission, but a match would be automatically stopped if there was a disqualification. And that, if you were disqualified, it was legitimately heat creating uh, a creating finish. You know, uh, it, it wouldn't just be a case of, you know, fans would actually riot about a disqualification because the, the guy was seen to have broken the rules so flagrantly. And, it, you know, in most cases, there was a public warning system as well. So if somebody had created a small infraction of the rules through their own volition, such as, you know, a closed fist or whatever, and it was caught, you would normally, you would be typically be allowed a public warning or two, depending on the severity of it, which would be addressed over the public address system. <laughs> like almost like, like uh, soccer, you know, like yeah. giving someone a card or something. Yes, like that. exactly. It was like, a, ex- that's exactly what it was based on. It was based <laughs> on that yellow card and red card system. So, you know, and because the MC or the the ring announcer would address it over the 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 house mic, that would that would automatically raise the heat in the match because it would create its own little pop. 
And I've always thought that the uh, I've always thought that the thing that was really special about the United Kingdom style of wrestling during the kind of golden age was the fact that the rounds created mini matches, and then there was the overarching story of the entire match. So if you had a match that was twelve rounds, you'd I almost see them as twelve mini matches with an overarching story. That's great. And I think the round thing, I mean, obviously that wasn't that wasn't done here, but it almost seems like it would it would help with commercial breaks too, because you could you wouldn't you you could try to time them. I don't know if this was done, but if you could time them between the rounds, then you wouldn't really miss any of the match on TV, which is kind of like what boxing does when yep. it's on commercial television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly that gave an opportunity for that. Um, I don't know if necessarily ITV, who were the broadcasters of pro wrestling, really considered that and, and took advantage of it to the full extent that they could have. But in most cases, it was just to give the guys a bit of a break and to make sure that certainly if a match did go the distance, you know, I mean, you've effectively got potentially about an hour's even three quarters of an hour of wrestling or an hours of wrestling. It just gave the crowd a break and a chance to absorb storytelling wise what they'd seen. Because here's the thing in pro wrestling, if you go full throttle and you hit a hundred moves in the space of a minute, nobody can digest it. If you, yes. if an important you, lesson that yes. is sometimes not heated. Exactly. Whereas if you have someone who has just escaped around whilst being held in a Boston crab, for example, they can sell the injury on their legs in the corner while they are getting padded down and getting a, a drink of water. They can sell that. And the crowd can say, look at the condition of this guy in the corner. He does not look like he's going to make the next round. You know, he's going to he's going to be finished. And it just it enables the crowd to digest what they've seen. A bit like how, you know, in one of in those old epic movies, there used to be an intermission in the middle of um, a movie. Right. Bathroom. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I mean, that used to be quite a a prevalent thing when people would go to the cinema. Yeah, I think if a movie was two and a half hours or more, definitely it would have uh, an intermission break in the middle. Now they just try to pack in as many showings as they can but you know i wanted to mention the you know i didn't know about the bret hart billy robinson connection until we were just talking about it even before we started recording but when you when you mention it i could completely see it because especially that 90s main event bret hart style and i mean he was even doing that in the 80s but he didn't really get a lot of a chance to do it um it it's very much like uh it's that same method of almost working like a machine, like mm-hmm. you're a wrestling machine, like you're just methodically taking somebody's body apart, you know, mm-hmm. bit by bit. And that was very much the Billy Robinson style, almost like um, like a wrestling machine. It was the style of a lot of guys because in the United Kingdom, we had seven weight divisions. But on a lot, on a lot of cards, it wasn't possible for uh, a guy in the lighter weight brackets to only fight guys in his division. So they would have matches that were between different weight categories and those matches would be called catch weight bouts. So if there was a heavyweight versus a middleweight, it would be a catch weight bout. 
And that style almost developed of from those interweight contests, because if you had a, a you know a smaller guy facing a bigger guy, he would have to resort to that kind of style of attacking the legs and going for submissions because he wants to keep him at a distance. And in some ways, it's almost a boxing influence of you used to have your, you know, the guys with the big reach would be your heavy hitters. And then you would have an inside fighter who would often be a smaller, smaller fighter, like a, like a Mike Tyson. Yeah. So they would be like inside fighters who would, you know, just target the midsection and that kind of, that kind of stuff instead of just being, you know, purely a knockout merchant. Um, So it was just that difference, that style kind of evolved because of somewhat of a stylistic marriage between boxing and wrestling. That's interesting. And there seems to have been, and I think we talked about this even the last time you were here, more of boxing and wrestling in the UK, you know, boxing and wrestling in the United States, they kind of started out as sister sports. They both went on wildly divergent paths. And it seems like in the UK, um, they kind of clung together a little bit more, even though wrestling was a work. But they clung, and boxing was occasionally as well. But they, but they clung together more tightly than mm-hmm. they did here for a longer period of time. Yeah, and and part of the reason for that was that in the nineteen forties there was a lot of controversy regarding pro wrestling because it was perceived as an unruly blood sport. <laughs> so it led to a governmental inquiry into pro wrestling. Because people were saying this sport is so unruly, people seem to be able to do anything, and somebody's going to get seriously hurt or die in the ring, and that just became the the basis for parliamentary intervention. Now promoters didn't want to show their hand and say, you know what, everything we do is entertainment, because that would have just, in their eyes, killed the industry. Right. So what they did was they allowed an element of parliamentary intervention and formulated stricter rules regarding pro wrestling so that's really where you know you had the seven weight divisions you had the 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 rounds became more of a a stringent element so so that was coming from outside it was almost like the way here we would have the state athletic commissions sticking Correct. their nose in and and they would have to kind of kiss up to them and pay lip service and do and sometimes pay more than lip service, pay actual money yeah. and just do, you know, to kind of keep them happy. Some states were rougher than others. New York was an extremely, I'm sure, you know, extremely strict state with athletic commissions and things. And mm-hmm. God, I even even to this day, even though wrestling has separated itself, like, for example, I've done a little bit of ring announcing over the years and i've done i live in the kind of new york tri-state area and when i do it in say new jersey or connecticut it is a lot simpler than in new york because there's all these things i have to read they hand me all that you have to say and it's weird because i know wwe doesn't have to do this so they must have special dispensations but i mean i've got to announce who the commissioner is who the doctor is who the you know like they used to do a lot of times in the old days but it was still being done at least um, I want to go, let's say like about 15 years ago, I was doing ring announcing on Indies in you know Brooklyn and Queens. And it was way more of a pain than it would be in other places where it was just do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think part of that, though, preserves the illusion of, I think, the the sport element. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. You know, yeah. the fact that you've got, uh, I mean, in, in the UK, all the wrestlers had an allocated second who would be the corner man holding the bucket. And, Great. you know, and in fact, in some cases, there were corner women, uh, probably the most famous being the, the person who I did a book with. Uh, Jeannie Clark. Oh, right. Of course. Yes. So she, yeah. She started in pro wrestling because of uh, being the, the corner woman for uh, Chris Adams. Oh, I, I didn't know that that was the, that was the connection there. I know as far as you'll, you'll see corner men in wrestling, I think in the U S if you go back, but I, I think probably about the sixties is probably the end of that. Like if you watch TV wrestling, from the 50s and 60s you'll see you know like luthez has these guys in the corner doing you know helping them out and things like that and that kind of went by the wayside i don't know maybe it became maybe as the wrestling managers started getting more of a role it was getting kind of crowded out there so they <laughs> kind of eliminated the seconds a little bit but you're right it does add an element of uh of reality to it sure mm-hmm. certainly yeah well, i mean that was that was a, a facet of pro wrestling that carried right through into the 1990s in the united kingdom wow that's amazing that that's that's amazing and you know i wanted to admit, speaking of the entertainment part of it and how you know they were so reluctant to to admit that which is uh, kind of what happened here where they finally eventually did to get mm-hmm. away from the athletic commissions there was something i wanted to mention to you when i saw it online I immediately thought of you. Somebody was sharing this. Maybe you saw it, but I think it's from the 80s. And it's when World of Sport was trying to do backstage promos. Oh, my God. Like the Saturday night's main event style. Yes. Yes. Backstage promos. And, you know, Big Daddy's in them, Johnny Saint. And they are are awkward, uh, to be kind. They're awkward. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen these. I have seen these, and those were something that, that I've often thought that that was kind of a reactive measure to basically address some of the modernizations that have been brought forward by the WF. Um, mm-hmm. Because I know that there was a point in the 1980s where the WF started getting television coverage on ITV as part of a shared. Uh, broadcast uh, so what happened was for the longest time from the 1950s through to the mid 80s joint promotions which was like the, the version of the NWA in the United Kingdom which was like a network of, of wrestlers that had all of the uh, the television rights stitched up with the national broadcasters but there was a bit of a campaign from the WF and all-star promotions which was the the kind of up insurgent upstart promotion uh from liverpool led by brian dixon they had both the wf and all-star made a, a big press campaign aiming for the end of the monopoly of pro wrestling on itv how and ironic yeah <laughs> <laughs> and eventually uh it was successful and this led to a kind of shared uh programming output the itv showcase which one week it would be uh, the wf one week it would be 
all-star and the next it would be joint promotions. So it became a rotational thing. Hmm. Now, obviously, when the WF presented its programming, it was light years ahead of anything that had been presented here in the past because we, you know, the UK were still showcasing bouts in smoky kind of old music halls and there were no elaborate ring entrances. Most of the guys would just arrive in the ring in their trunks and boots and just wrestling gear, you know. I'm not saying all of them, but it was a real rarity for guys to be as flamboyant right. as a as a, as a Hulk Hogan or a Ric Flair or whomever, you know. And a lot of the wrestlers didn't have the superstar bodies because, you know, they, they were just considered wrestlers. They weren't thinking, how do we... Uh, compete with a Sylvester Stallone or an, or an Arnold Schwarzenegger because, you know, the United Kingdom only had four channels. So you they had a bit of a captive audience. They didn't have to compete with the the same kind of output that American promotions had to. Is that the reason why, you know, I did a, a tribute episode a couple of months ago to Adrian Street when he passed. And mm-hmm. on that episode, we were talking about how Adrian didn't really get over that well over there that he, when he came here, he actually had a lot more success. And I don't know if that's entirely true, but is, is that part of maybe why that might've been that he just couldn't uh, fit in with the more kind of straightforward type of wrestling that they were, even though he certainly was capable of doing it uh, Mm -hmm. that they were doing over there. I think, I think Adrian, Adrian street left for a few issues. Okay. So um, without dwelling on all of the reasons that he left for, for the United States. Um, I know that he'd been in a, a marriage that went bad. Oh, wow. Um, this is getting so, very dramatic. I didn't know about all this. Yeah, there was a, and there was a situation involving himself and another pro wrestler um, over over his ex-wife. So wow. that, that was something that, that kind of led to his um, relocation, shall we say. So he was so, on the lamb. He he was. <laughs> I didn't realize this. He was. Uh, he was had to get out of town. Sounds like there was there, there was an element of that. Um, I don't know all of the details, but uh, some of the stories made the, the press actually, um, which became a major issue. So um, and and also, Adrian, because of his status as a star, when a guy gets quite big they have more demands and sure. it he became persona non grata with joint promotions and he ended up running his own shows as a promoter and just like every promoter when you start promoting shows some talent get annoyed with you about money and say i'm getting paid less than this guy why is that the case and it's impossible to be everyone's friend in pro wrestling when you're a promoter a hard so, lesson indeed <laughs> yeah, and and also the fact that you know there's always been a sense of glamour with the United States that wrestlers from the United Kingdom found, and they would, you know, clamour to 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 go for the bright lights of and promise of the United States, especially with the the touring capability, because the United Kingdom geographically is a fairly small place, and if you're touring town to town, your act unless you're really really good. And a fantastic wrestler, your act can get pretty stale quite quickly, especially for character-based guys. So, you know, with respect to, to Adrian Street, he was an amazing character. 
that stood out from the crowd, but the character gets old unless you're really, really, really a superlative wrestler. And right, and yeah. yeah, and when when he came here, he had the opportunity to go to far flung places. Like you could show up in Texas, and then you can go to the Midwest, and you can go to the Southeast, and people hadn't seen you before it was definitely a lot easier to do that certainly that's right and it prolongs your career if you if you're able to to wrestle in florida and then go to portland where it's all regional television it just prolongs your career so right he probably exhausted what he felt was the united kingdom fan base uh, in terms of taking his character as far as he could go and also he he had personality clashes with the, the decision makers in pro wrestling in the United Kingdom. That's interesting. I didn't know about a lot of that about him. Um, I want to mention too, especially before, you know, um, I didn't want to get too all over the place, although that's sort of my stock and trade, but we were talking before we started, and this is interesting to me because I like to get into things having to do with wrestling really in Europe in general, but the UK and everywhere that, that, doesn't get talked about a lot here. And we were talking about in context of, you know, we just had the the big all-in show at Wembley Stadium. Perhaps the exact crowd number is under dispute and under a cloud of mystery, but we can all agree it was an extremely large crowd and one mm-hmm. of the one of the largest crowds in wrestling history, possibly the all-time paid attendance record. I don't know if we'll ever really know, but um you were talking about how you were kind of looking into some of the some of the history of of stadium shows in Scotland, right? That's right. So basically, um, just before All In, I had the privilege of attending a lunch immediately before the show, where a group of British wrestling historians and and Dave Meltzer as well, we all had a a, a lunch just talking oh, wow. about pro wrestling and the changing uh, the changing nature of it. And before that. I had been captivated about just the history of Wembley Stadium, for example, and just seeing about other stadium shows, because everyone knows about the previous 1992 SummerSlam, where Brett and Davey had that unforgettable bout. And it was the the supposed to have been the biggest WF show, I think, up to that point, including WrestleMania 3. It was, Which, although they couldn't say it at the time because yeah, they would yeah. they would have had to no, it was really weird. They would have had to have admitted that the WrestleMania three number was worked. But yes, Wembley SummerSlam ninety two was actually their biggest show uh, ever yeah. up to that point. Yeah. So so it put me on a bit of a you know a research rabbit hole where I started looking into old uh, microfiche and newspaper archives regarding stadium, the history of stadium pro wrestling in the United Kingdom, particularly as it related to Scotland. And I was just fascinated by the amount of international visitors that came to our our shores to wrestle in front of huge soccer stadium crowds. We had a match with, there was a guy called Alex Monroe, who was a policeman, uh, but he was also a wrestler. A lot of the, the wrestlers at the time had other jobs. Yeah. So a lot of really good pro wrestlers or even Highland Games style competitive wrestlers were policemen because they were expected to stay healthy and were paid reasonably well at the time and were almost treated like uh, racing horses in terms of, you know, just keeping themselves well and 
and and keeping themselves in shape. Alex Monroe was a guy who would take on all comers and was a credible challenger for the world title. In 1904, I think it was, um, he faced Tom Jenkins in Ibrox Stadium, which was in, in, in front of a huge crowd. But one of the more notable bouts he had was in Octo- on October 1905, Alex Monroe faced George Hackenschmidt, oh, wow. the Russian Lion. In fact, and, and in fact, this was a match that caused the Football Association of Scotland to write to the stadium saying, don't do this again in terms of presenting a bout at the same time as soccer fixtures. Because the bout drew, the reports vary between 10,000 to 30,000, but it basically sucked away some of the audience that would have typically went to a soccer match. Oh, wow. Okay. So not, not a big fan of the competition, you know, just yes. sort of wanting to kind of uh, keep the competition under control. And for people that don't know too, Tom Jenkins, that's an important name. A lot of people know Hackenschmidt, but Tom Jenkins was the guy who basically George Hackenschmidt was, you know, celebrated all over Europe. He had won all these tournaments. He was a really big deal. He, you know, he was called by some, the world champion considered himself the European champion. He came over here Madison Square Garden, 1905, I believe it was Mm -hmm. 05, he wrestled Tom Jenkins, who was recognized as kind of America's answer to him. He was, you know, varying descriptors, but generally today uh, called the American heavyweight champion. And so it was a natural match. And it was Hackenschmidt winning that match that really is seen today as uh, the beginning of kind of the widely recognized world heavyweight wrestling championship. It's Hackenschmidt beating Jenkins in the garden. And then three years later, he loses to Frank Gotch. But but Jenkins is a major uh, figure there that I don't think gets talked about enough today. He was absolutely critical in that early 20th century uh, wrestling history. That's right. And we had stadium wrestling all the way through. So even as late as 1956, in soccer stadiums, there were still being packed out with wrestling fans watching the likes of a George Kidd defend his world lightweight title. So it's just it's just phenomenal to think that from 1905 right through to current day, to modern times, we've got a history of stadium shows. This was not a case of, you know, the Von Erichs being the kind of catalyst of, of, of stadium wrestling in 1980s Texas or whatever. You know, I mean, I can't, I'm not I'm not an expert on United States wrestling, but when I think of pro wrestling in, in America, I can't really think of too many stadium shows other than maybe involving Londis potentially. Well, prior to prior to say the pay per view era, especially, they're few and far between. I mean, you get um, in the early '60s there was a series of them at Comiskey Park, uh, the most in Chicago. The most famous one was when Buddy Rogers won the world title from Pat O'Connor. That's right. Um, I know in the 30s, they did a bunch. I know Jim Londos and Dano O'Mahony, who was the Irish wrestler, they did, um, oh, I want to say, I think that I know there was a big show at Fenway in Boston. There was uh, at the Braves Stadium. I don't have it all in front of me, which was also in Boston at the time, because Paul Bowser was the promoter there and he would do that. There was also uh, Yankee Stadium had a couple, which I've always been amazed. 
that it's never been done. Yankee Stadium had one or two in the 30s, and then they had one in the beginning of the 50s with Raqqa, and then they just never did it again. Uh, you know, we all know about the Shea Stadium ones that the WWF did in the 70s and early 80s. But again, it would be this very special thing where it would have to be a special match, a special bout, a special kind of attraction um, where they would do it. I think the AWA did a couple of Comiskey shows in the 70s and early 80s, but it wasn't like a regular recurring thing. You know, it was mm-hmm. like it was um, it was a, a very special event, typically. Yeah. So it's just, it's just one of those things. I just found it was fascinating to learn about the history of stadium shows in the United Kingdom and also find a platform to showcase to a modern audience that this was a phenomenon that did not ex- begin in 1992. Right. Yeah, yeah. and the, the Londis thing is interesting because that was actually coming up when there was all this talk about All In, having all these records and things. There were a couple of shows that he, he did, appearances he did in Greece. Uh, I forget the name of the stadium. I wish I had it in front of me, but it was a big, I think it might still be around. It was this big outdoor kind of stadium Mm-hmm. And he did a couple of shows there that are highly in dispute where um, I think it was sort of like when he was on the outs with a lot of American promoters who, you know, just like today that, you know, he got to be too big of a star and they wanted people they could control easier. He went over there. And of course, being Greek, it was an it was a no brainer to bring him to Greece. And there are a couple of shows where they talk about, I mean, the numbers are all over the place. Some people say 100,000 people were there to see this, to see him do this. And now what I've heard more recently is the estimations are, it was an interesting thing where I guess the stadium itself only holds something like 60,000 some odd people. So I guess the live attendance, actual paid people there is probably in that range. But what they were saying is because it's located in kind of like this valley or something, it's surrounded by hills, that there were tens of thousands of people potentially sitting all over these hills who were just looking down into the open stadium. And so if you count all of them, yep. you might get to like 100,000. You know, it was kind of like almost like a Woodstock thing where, mm-hmm. you know, the amount of people who paid to be there versus the amount of people who were actually there, you know? Yeah. And then one of the reasons that paid attendance at least in the United Kingdom, is so hard to track is because it was often in the interests of the promoters to downplay the attendance. Yes. Not to hype it upwards like is currently the case. Now it seems that everyone inflates their attendance to look good and to project that, you know how successful the promotion is. Previously, promoters would actually say there were less fans so that it would translate in smaller wages, smaller compensation for the wrestlers, smaller taxation that they were paying to the, to the venues, all of these things, you know, I remember hearing from a lot of wrestlers at the time of Max Crabtree's passing. Max Crabtree was one of the more famous wrestling promoters in the United Kingdom. And the story was that this wrestler received a, a, a quite a small payoff, and he said, "But the uh, the crowd was huge. How does this how does this payoff work?" And Max had said, "Oh, somebody had left the back door open." 
So. Shameless, shameless. <laughs> it's like, yeah, those things happen. It's like the infamous story with Eddie Farhat's uh, Eddie Farhat Jr., where he tried to tell the Funks in Kobo that the cash box had been stolen. Mm-hmm. It's a famous story where they came in to help the Sheik when his business was down, and you know they tried to pretend that they got robbed. Uh, yeah, those things would happen. But it's funny the thing about downplaying the business. I I discovered that when I was. Uh, I've been doing these interviews for the Gorilla Monsoon book that I'm working on, and mm-hmm. I forget who it was. Somebody told me, might have been Gary Capetta or maybe Ken Patera, who was there in those days, who said that Vince Sr. would occasionally there'd be a newspaper man there at, interviewing him backstage at the Garden. And yep. he would always be, I think it was Mario Savoldi who told me this, he would always be talking about, well, business is a little slow. You know, we're trying to bring more people in. And, and you know, Mario would say, I would look through the curtain and it's packed to the to the roof, you know. And the, one of the reasons was that there was a fear that if you started touting how hot the territory was too, somebody else would try to come in. Well, somebody would go, oh, wow, it's really hot at the Garden. New York is, is really doing well. I'm going to try to run a show at the Garden. I'm going to see how many people I could draw there. So it's almost like they wanted to give the impression that, oh, it, oh, it, it's a dead area. Don't don't come here. It's really, it's just dead. And it, it's funny they because it, it was such a secretive business back then. Everything about it, including the, the business end of it, was just a secret. Yeah, and, and incredibly... In the 1950s, late 50s, early 60s, there was almost a civil war over promo- a promotional civil war in the United Kingdom, where, you know, obviously the United States had the National Wrestling Alliance, so there wasn't really a civil war as such. There might have been territorial disputes in specific states, but those were often kind of resolved quite quickly because of the the might of the entire network of the NWA. Right. That's why they came up with it, because it had, right. it had been chaos before that. If you that's look at the 30s and 40s, it was like a complete insanity, just the Wild West. And that's when they started breaking off into territories because they were going into their little silos because they couldn't work together. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, in, in the United Kingdom, there was a, a kind of almost a rival network of promoters that was established in the 50s two joint promotions, which were called the British Wrestling Federation. And it was effectively six promoters that bandied together to combat the big monopoly. And eventually, you know, business, there was a peace offering that was made around the kind of 60s where everyone just acquiesced and said, you know what, we're going to stop this war because there's so much business to be done that everyone can actually coexist. And they ended up all getting into talent trading agreements, things like that. So it became one of those things that business was so hot, rival promoters became aware of it, did run against the the big the big brands, but ended up that the business ended up being healthier because of it, which is kind of strange. It's almost the only kind of comparison I can almost make to that is how New Japan's business exploded in 1995 with the UWFI angle. Right. Right, where they turned an invasion into, you know, a storyline, basically. They turned, like, a business 
conflict into yeah that, and that's also kind of like what happened in memphis with the Paphos company icw where they turned mm-hmm. that again into a storyline we're going to have randy savage against jerry lawler and yep. that kind of thing how much of a of an of a connection if any did did the nwa have over there because you know how i mean essentially it was U.S. and Canada. I mean, if we really break it down, I know they had the flags all over the belt and everything, but they did have connections in Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Mexico. There were, you know, kind of there was representation there. How much mm-hmm. was there in the U.K., if any? There was very little in terms of a business influence. However, in the in the wrestling magazines, it was always promoted that the world champion was Dory Funk or Luthez or whoever was the NWA champion at the time. And then, interestingly, at one point in the 70s, the NWA champion stopped being recognized by the British press and they started heralding Bruno as the guy. So wow. at one point, there was a, a switch to who was perceived by the British media as, as, the, world, as the world champion. In terms of connections to the United Kingdom, some of the NWA stars came over. I mean, uh, obviously we had Whipper Billy Watson in the 40s before he became NWA champion. There Did was the world tour. champions come? Yep. Uh, Luthez. Luthez came over to the United Kingdom. But that was, I think, after... Uh, I think that was after he dropped the the NWA belt and he was starting to recognize himself as like the international champion. I think he carried that belt in Japan. Right. Yeah. When he sort of had uh, a kind of a falling out and before they invited him to come back. That's right. That's right. So he had a short tour and he faced guys like Mike Marino and the the tour was ended up, ended up being uh, cut short. Um, I think, I don't know if he was in the process of a divorce or something like that, but I think there was a there was an issue involving his wife at the time, um, yeah. which ended up causing him to to return to the states. So that was what was reported in the media, at least. Uh, wow. There were lots of stars from the United States that came over, such as Peter Maivia, uh, Ricky Starr, being another one, the the famous kind of Bali wrestler. He stayed yeah. over there in Europe, right? He just he kind of just in the sixties yep. he he went over and never came back. That's right. That's right. And uh, another guy that, um, that 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 people will remember from his passing recently was uh, General Adnan when he was he he wrestled here for a while. Yeah, he you know, when he just passed recently, uh, you know, with doing working on the wrestling news, a big part mm-hmm. of what I do is writing obituaries, which can mm-hmm. sometimes get a little depressing or yeah. or upsetting and things. But when he, but you learn things about people, you know. And when I did his recently, I really got a sense of how global he was. Like he just he wrestled all over the world. I mean, we knew him here as Sheik Adnan Al Casey and and Billy White Wolf for years. Actually, even the most of his career here, he wrestled as the Native American Billy White Wolf. But I mean, he he was all over the world. His career. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Middle East, he had the whole thing with. Saddam Hussein, they were high school buddies. Apparently, that is a shoot. They were high school pals, and he became 
like the pro wrestling liaison for Iraq in the 70s. I mean, it's a crazy story where he's bringing pro wrestling shows over there. And those shows are not even really documented today. You can't find comprehensive results. I know they're saying that he he may have even beaten Andre the Giant on one of those shows, but it's not conclusively known. But basically he had uh, this weird kind of falling out where Saddam Hussein finally became the president. You know, he had been a member of the government, but once he became the president, then he started getting, you know, megalomaniacal, paranoid, uh, and and um, Adnan Al-Kasi started fearing for his life. It's actually not too different from what happened with Khazar Vaziri, the Iron Sheik in Iran, where he started mm-hmm. feeling threatened, you know, he was like their national wrestling hero. And he started going, well, I don't even know if my life is safe, you know, because people are jealous of me and my notoriety. And he got out. A very similar thing happened with Adnan. He already had been wrestling in the United States for many years, but uh, he had this whole side thing going on in Iraq. And by the end of the 70s, that stopped. And ironically, that's actually when he became a full-time fixture in the AWA for many years in the 80s as as Sheikh Adnan Al-Kasi, because he really was then focusing on the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, Adnan wrestled here under the Billy White Wolf gimmick for, for years and years and years. And if anyone ever wants to see how over a hometown hero is, check out Adnan's match, Al-Kasi's match with uh, Ian Campbell in front of a packed audience. I I don't even know how many people are in the audience. It must be about 60,000 people. Uh, he has a match against Ian Campbell. And you can watch that. It's on YouTube. It's quite hard to find the match. But if you do a search for Adnan Al-Kasey uh, versus Ian Campbell, who was inducted into the Wrestling Hall of Fame for Scotland a couple of years ago, uh, it's just... It's just phenomenal. If you ever think of a guy being hot in his hometown, you think of a guy like Jerry Lawler in Memphis, you know, Flair in Charlotte, whatever. You just have to see how big a star Adnan Al-Kasey was in the 60s and 70s to just see the what really is a folk hero. That's amazing to me when, when you have portions of some of these guys' careers that people don't know enough about even if you know who they are you know them for other things or things they did later on or things they did maybe closer to where you lived like when he died you know the majority of people that were reporting on it or reading about it or whatever they knew him maybe they knew him from the awa but they mainly knew him as General Adnan from, mm-hmm. you know, the year and a half that he was brought back to the WWF as Sergeant Slaughter's manager. That was like the thing that stayed with everybody, you know. And, and, but this has been one of those traditions that's always been the case with wrestlers and wrestling managers is that a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the managers had glittering careers as pro wrestlers. A guy like a Bobby Heenan, for example, was a tremendous pro wrestler. You know, I, I, you had in Canada John Foley, uh, who was was a big star in Stampede and was often the manager of various factions. He was an enormously talented, big time wrestler in the United Kingdom scene before he was the manager of the Dynamite Kid in in Canada. 
Well, a great example is Blassie too, because a lot of yeah. times, like like somebody like a Bobby Heenan, who was very talented as a wrestler, um, he was never he wasn't like a main event guy. He wasn't a massive yeah. star. Captain Lou Albano used to joke about it all the time. He was kind of a flop as a wrestler. I think he was being hard on himself, but but he never really made the main event money as a wrestler. As a manager, he's known you know far and wide. But Blassie was really interesting because Blassie was a national star in the United States. He was main event, box office, huge, big deal, especially on the West Coast. But he came even over to New York, and, uh, and he was big in Georgia and, and in the South and Texas and things. He was a major main event star who is – by and large known today remembered for being a manager in the WWF but um that was just the last few years of his career because his knees were bad and he couldn't really walk anymore and that but that's the thing now that people know him as you know mm -hmm. it's just amazing how the business changes and the business eventually became more inclusive to the point that non-wrestlers then started to be welcomed in as managers because Normally, they'd earn the trust in some other capacity, such as being a ringside photographer, such as a Paul Heyman or Jim Cornette, right, or 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 some other version of uh, entering the business where they'd earn the trust of the, the talent. Um, one thing I did want to bring up just briefly, while you know we've obviously spoken about All In and the enormous success of that show, one of the things that the audience may not be aware of is that the word All In was actually the, the word that was originally used to describe the style of pro wrestling in the United right. Kingdom. That's right. Yes. Which I yeah. don't even think there was any awareness of that because the first all in that they did was here. So it That's wasn't right. even, it wasn't even a UK thing. That's really what, what yeah. a, what a interesting coincidence. It is one of those weird coincidences. Obviously the, the name for the pay-per-view derived from the fact that the, in the 2018 pay-per-view, they were going all in and placing all bets on the show, right? That's where right. that name derived from. But it's just one of those kind of poetic coincidences that the biggest show in British wrestling history is called All In, which was the name that was the original pro wrestling style in the UK, which basically meant hybrid style. Is it sort of like what we would call catch as catch can? Kind, yeah, kind of. But the idea is that it was slightly more loose and that you could use any style. You could use judo, you could use, and the, you know, any, just a hybrid of techniques. Therefore, instead of saying anything goes, which then would have just alerted people to how unruly it was, it was all in. Ah, okay. So it's sort of like, it's kind of like, again, we talk about how these things diverge and then come back. How, you know, it's basically what MMA is, except MMA is legitimate competition. But if you go back to the history of pro wrestling, even here in the U.S., essentially, especially before it really was a performance, when it was more of kind of a dirty sport, um, it essentially was MMA. I mean, that's essentially what they were doing. The catch wrestling style w w had a lot of elements of what today we would call MMA, especially the grappling part of MMA, but because pro wrestling became performance and showbiz and entertainment, then mm -hmm. all these decades later, you had to get these people saying, hey, what if we did this for real? What if we had real combat, you know, athletes doing this? 
you know, where it wasn't entertainment, not realizing that, well, that's what we were doing a hundred years ago, basically, yeah, you know, that's right. I remember, I remember that Historical. first UFC very well. It was, it was kind of just like a, an invitational tournament with a boxer or a guy that was from a karate background, right. a, a judoka and all these different, uh, hybrid, hybrid, uh, athletes. And then it ended up being, uh, turning into its own style completely. Yeah, it did. You're right. Initially, that was the appeal of it was you had all these different types of fighters going against each other using their disciplines. And I actually liked getting you'd get to see uh, Ken Shamrock or a Dan Severn, people that were like legit wrestlers Mm -hmm. and do their thing. I mean, Dan Severn was walking around with the NWA World Heavyweight title belt on one shoulder and the UFC heavyweight title belt on the other shoulder i mean that's if you think about that in today's terms that's mind-blowing that's like if brock lesnar had the wwe title and then the ufc title at the same time you know or something like that um but like you said as it went along when ufc now has been around for 30 years um it's its own thing you've had like generations of fighters who have watched it and learned about it and come up in it. So now it really, it is like the UFC style. I don't enjoy it as much because it just, to me just becomes, um, it's just a lot of, I don't know. I, I, I don't like to talk about things I'm not an expert on, but I like much more of the grappling technique. Whereas now it's just like, I'm just going to kick you in the head 40 times and, until you give up, you know, when you're on the mat and, and you know, that, that doesn't have as much appeal to me. I think for a lot of people, the fact that, you know, it's become its own thing and people saw what would happen if a boxer faced a wrestler and that, that curiosity has been answered. I think that's taken the appeal away from a lot of wrestling fans yes. in particular. And I think a lot of the curiosity as well stemmed from part of the appeal, I think, of the early UFC and even Pride and K1, all of these different MMA influences of the time, even UWFI, uh, the appeal of these contests and tournaments was centered around almost a kind of live presentation of what we were growing up with in the 80s and 90s as video games, like the idea of Street Fighter 2. Street Fighter, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you've got like the world champion, Balrog, who's the boxer. And then you've got a kind of Ryu, who is the uh, dedicated karate practitioner. And all of these different, you know, you had Zangiev, who was the the Russian wrestler. So early UFC was almost like it was trying to tap into video game culture, I think. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but I could see sort of the Street Fighter connection. And it's funny you say that because that is... A lot of times what gets leveled at AEW today, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. even though it's pro wrestling, it's not MMA, but it's very much presented in a video game style. Like I and I think that's why so much of their product and their philosophy is booking dream matches. That's like much more that seems to be much more Tony Khan's priority is booking these amazing dream matches rather than the WWE style, which is more like the storylines and how do we get there? And the journey is more important than the destination 
the match mm-hmm. is almost like, oh, yeah, and there's going to be a match, you know, whereas in AEW, it's more like, you know, oh, my God, it's this guy versus this guy. I've never seen this before, you know, and, and that is their way of doing things, which, yeah, is is like a video game kind of approach. There's effectively two ways of selling a wrestling show. You either sell a wrestling show based around the stars or you sell it based around the brand. And I guess, in you know, that's the difference between the two promotions. Yeah, and that's very true. And WWE crossed that river so long ago. I think I've told the story here before, but it bears repeating. And, and we've seen it in how they've developed. Even when I had the opportunity to interview Vince McMahon, he would tell me explicitly, point blank, that his goal had been for years to make the brand the attraction that you were coming to see WWE. And the reason was from his point of view, again, that he, and even he even said, even his father before him, it would just be years and years of them dealing with talent who would get really big and then they would get difficult and they would make demands and you would be, and again, this is from their point of view. I'm not saying I completely agree, but you'd be held ransom by the whims of your talent. You'd have to make them happy. Otherwise, you know, the drawing appeal of your show would go down the tubes you know, like Bruno's dad was, I'm sorry, Vince's dad was always kind of wrangling with Bruno and they were locking horns and, and Vince had his troubles with Hogan and Bret Hart and Bob Backlund or, well, not so much Backlund, but there would be issues. And so the goal always was the make the top wrestlers interchangeable. They're part Mm -hmm. of the touring brand. And so I think like over the years, it's gotten much more that like Austin and rock was, the last gasp, I think, of really where it's like, I want to see that guy. And I know they still have that to an extent. Like John Cena very much was a needle mover when he was on shows. The shows would do better attendance-wise, certainly. But by that point, it was much more muted than it had been in the, in the eras of Hogan or or Austin. And now, even with somebody like a Roman Reigns, who is by far the biggest star they have and the biggest star in wrestling. And he is a transcendent star at this point. But we see when you look at their numbers, it almost doesn't matter whether he's there or not. They do these incredible numbers. And that's why, you know, a lot of people get frustrated and they say, well, and I'm one of them. Well, he needs to be on the road more. He needs to be giving people their money's worth. He's the standard bearer. He should be there front and center. But the numbers show that he doesn't have to be because people go to shows now, as you know, not even knowing who's going to be there. Whereas mm-hmm. back when we were kids and when, you know, you wanted to see the card, who's, who's wrestling, who they'd have the localized promos, who's coming, who's going to be there. Now it's almost an afterthought. It's just, we're going to see WWE. Certainly. If you look at the history of, you know, and we were speaking before the show, uh, we were talking about some of those old vintage posters that we both collect and things of that nature. Well, in a lot of the United Kingdom posters, I couldn't even tell you who the promoters were most of the time. I could just tell you who's on the card. That's and that that's important. That's a big change, right? Because Vince started, I don't want to say started, but he really made it the norm to do this kind of branding where you're branding your promotion. Uh, a lot of times, like you said, on old time wrestling cards and advertisements, you didn't even know what the name of the promotion was or the name of the wrestling company. It was just championship wrestling we're going to mm-hmm. see res- wrestling and you know who's on the card was what it was all about and and that's 
what sold the show. You didn't know who the promoter was, who the what the name of the wrestling company was. There was no thought of that. But part of the problem with that is it all becomes interchangeable. Like if you look back now on different territories and things, unless you're an expert and you can tell by certain details, you have no way of knowing even where it was or what company yep. it was because that's just the way they presented it. And I think AEW is a little bit more like that today than WWE is where they're much more, as we've seen with the punk debacle, they're much more dependent on individual stars rather than the brand itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the interesting facets about UK venues, a lot of the larger venues such as the Music Hall in Aberdeen, El Dorado Stadium in Edinburgh, and perhaps even Royal Albert Hall, a lot of these venues had their own ring. So the wrestling promotions didn't bring a ring with them. They just brought the talent. Right, right. And and that would happen here sometimes too before it all became proprietary, like Madison Square Garden had its own ring. Yeah. And the wrestlers Whereas, hated it because it was a boxing ring. Yeah. Whereas could you imagine the WWE presenting any kind of live event which didn't have their branding all over it? No, absolutely not. <laughs> but but I remember shows like that where the turnbuckles just said Everlast, you yeah. know, or nothing. And it was a WWF show. It depended where they were. Um, the the branding was something that Vince was way, way ahead of the curve on and, and you know, owning the rings and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. owning everything, owning the names of your talent. Yeah. I mean, that was one of his uh one of his innovations it certainly helped him that's for sure yeah and and although you know we've now entered the era of the matches not necessarily being as important even AEW's all in show wasn't really presented around a match in the United Kingdom we didn't really know the card until last right. week of, of of promotion really the, the card was still somewhat fluid it just said all in and had a a cacophony of wrestlers all over the poster but you know but it didn't have any kind of match. We didn't know if it was going to be Sting's retirement bout on that card. We didn't know if it was going to be, you know, CM Punk versus Daniel uh, Brian Danielson or who it was going to be. We didn't know anything until almost the last three weeks of promotion. And I and, wonder if they were reinforced in that decision when they looked at the fact that the tickets were going like crazy. Because, mm-hmm. well, then... You know, if the sales had been very, very sluggish, let's say, then they might have been more motivated to say, oh, we've got this match happening. Oh, you know, we're going to do this. This is a reason to come. But they were justified because they were looking at it and going, well, it's selling on its own. We don't need to uh, go crazy with with booking angles and matches. We can take our time because it's doing brisk business. Yeah. And I guess we'll only really know the success of the all in name and AEW strength the United Kingdom next year because now the curiosity element cannot be relied on as the draw. Right. Because the show has been done. Right. So we'll only know the strength of the, the brand next year when they try and do it again. Will lightning strike twice? That's the kind of curiosity. Are they gonna draw eighty thousand people again? Are they gonna are they gonna improve on that? Are they going to draw half the audience because people have seen the show and it's it's done and memory, you know, is something that they've already got. Um, so it'll just be interesting to see. One of the things that 
was incredible to me was the fact that apart from around the Wembley area, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a huge amount of marketing for the show in, in this in the city. That's what I'd heard. Yeah. Yeah. It was just you could have not it would have just been about the same strength of marketing as a WWE house show. Uh, it's very different. Venue. Yeah, it's different from let's say a SummerSlam thing where it really was the sense that the WWF has invaded. They are yeah. in town. They're mm-hmm. everywhere, uh, and and they're they're really making their presence felt. Yeah, it'll it will be interesting to see because like even looking at something like a Grand Slam, as we're recording this, it's the week of the Grand Slam show at Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens, which I was at the first one. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a WrestleMania atmosphere. And it yeah. was the biggest crowd that even though, I mean, it was wasn't, you know, it was 20 something thousand, but it was the biggest non WWE crowd in New York City since the 1950s, which mm-hmm. was a big deal. But now we're looking at, I mean, it's something like maybe a third, at least the last time I checked, a third the amount of tickets sold to this. So it will be interesting to see maybe the UK and the connection like we talked about with stadium shows and the history of people will just love to go to a stadium to see wrestling. Maybe it'll be different. I don't know, but uh, we're all curious to see what happens next year. It's an exciting time. And what's really amazing about the all in story, at least this year's all in story is the fact that this is a promotion, which does not often have the best time slot in the United Kingdom because AEW Dynamite often has staggered start times in the UK. It sometimes has a start time of 11 p.m. Sometimes it's a 9 p.m. start. It's never the same. It just seems to be moved about by ITV4 for whatever reason. That's kind of like what was happening here with Ring of Honor on some of the networks they were on before Tony Khan bought it was yeah I mean it was like the DVR's worst nightmare you never knew where the heck it was gonna pop up or or when and which mm-hmm. is not good that's not good no. for building an audience no. people love habit yeah. you know wrestling fans love habit well so. we've been all over the place with this conversation <laughs> I think I don't think I've ever talked as much about current wrestling on the show as we did today, but we were, and, and then we went all the way back to 1905. So, you know, this, this did not disappoint. We covered uh, 120 years of pro wrestling in a little over an hour, Brad. And, and thank you so much. This is great. Hey, I, I could talk with you forever, Brian, you know, and you know that. So that we, I know we've we, had phone calls that went on twice the length of the, of what we've done here today, but I'm not exactly. going to put people through that. So, you know, we're, we're kind of like the Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair where the best stuff was the stuff that wasn't on tape. Right. Where they just say, look, uh, you take the first fall, you take the second fall, <laughs> the third one, we're going to go to the time limit and that's it. Go out there and do it. You know, it's that's more it. like that. We're more the Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair than we are the Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat, where it's like you got to plan out every little thing <laughs> that you're going to do and say that that's definitely not what we do here. But thanks for going with the flow. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I hope I haven't bored your listeners too much. Not it. Listen, if I'm interested, they're interested. I know I can say that with confidence because <laughs> this happens all the time where I have the people that will say to me, you know, I didn't realize how much I was going to love the show. I'm, I always love to hear that. But since we had you here before and people knew how interesting it was that time, I'm hoping that they knew a little bit more what to expect this time. And I, I, I know 
that people are not going to be disappointed. Thank you, Brian. There you have it, folks, my conversation with Bradley Craig. And Brad, thanks for coming back to Shut Up and Wrestle. Brad was the first repeat guest on the show, other than there have been others, people that I've had back on obituary episodes. Uh, But Brad was the first to be brought back for no other reason, just that simply we had a wonderful conversation and I wanted to continue it. And I'll be doing more of that with some of the best guests on the show as we move along. There'll be a lot of other great guests on the way. I'm excited to let you know that next week for episode 93, this is going to be a barn burner because I'm having somebody on the show with me who anybody who follows wrestling media and wrestling journalism knows about. I am talking about the co-host of Wrestling Observer Radio and the man behind Figure Four Weekly. That is right. Brian Alvarez will be my guest. A meeting of the Bryans next week here on Shut Up and Wrestle. And I'm grateful to Brian's co-host and my colleague, Mike Sempervivi, for making that conversation possible. So you can look forward to that next week. Lots of other great things on the way. I've got Andrew Wilson, former creative director for WWE, on the way. I've got another big momentous from the archives episode. I'm not quite ready to reveal who it is yet, but it's a biggie. Episode 100 is on the way. Lots of ideas brewing for that one. Lots of other possibilities and other great guests. So keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. Follow the show. You will not regret it. You can listen at our website, suawpod.com. You can also go wherever you find your podcasts. Podcast Addict, Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, you know the rest. And while you're there, while you're following the show, join us in the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. And speaking of Mike Sempervivi, do not forget to become a listener and subscriber if you're not already to the Wrestling News from Arcadian Vanguard. You can find it at thewrestlingnews.com. Or once again, wherever you get your podcast, it's also on the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. The magazines that I write for, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can pick up at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes, you can pick up at insidetheropesmagazine.com. My books, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic and Superheroes, the History of a Pop Culture Phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. You can get wherever books are sold, including online. And I also have signed autographed copies that are available. Reach out to me at Solomon at yahoo.com, and we can talk. If you're looking for me on social media, you will find me on Twitter or Instagram at Solomon. You'll find me on Facebook, my author page, Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and saying, show me the way to go home. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. So long, wrestling fans.